This morning we'll be reading selected passages from 1 Kings. This is God's word. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statues of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, And now, O Lord my God, You have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or count for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidian and Hittite women, he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon, and I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Gigi. Uh, Good morning, my name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. It's so good to see so many of you. Uh, This morning, we continue in our series... Uh, through the Old Testament scriptures, uh, which is we began about the time school started. We're going to be doing this all the way until about Christmas time this year. So you can imagine that there's a lot in there, right? It's quite a chunk, and we're kind of making our way slowly through. And we've come to uh, the story of David's son Solomon. If you were here last week, you know 
uh, that in 2 Samuel 7, God promises David a son, and here we meet with the son, uh, and his name is Solomon, and, and we of course know some of these, if you've been in the church for a while, you know that these stories, they're very, very famous stories. Uh, our desire is to tell the story the Bible is telling, and if you wanted to, one way you could do that is through a single idea or through a single word. The entire story of the Bible really can be, it revolves around one single idea or one single word, and that word is shalom. It's translated as the word peace, but it means a whole lot more than that. It means the way things ought to be is the best definition I've ever heard. In other words, it is the good in the creation story, when God looked at all that he had made, and you remember what he said over and over again, it is good. Shalom is life in Eden before the fall and all that the image of Eden evokes. Things like human flourishing and abundance and personal and psychological and emotional and relational wholeness. We were created for shalom. Sin has destroyed it. The world is no longer the way it ought to be. But as we've been seeing, God's plan, what's driving this story along as we, as we keep looking at, at it here in the Old Testament, God's plan is to once again bring shalom to the earth. It was through Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and we looked there for a number of weeks, through Abraham and his descendants, the nation of Israel, that we were told he would begin to accomplish this great feat. But as the story has gone on, we have learned, again, as we've walked through, That it's not through Israel, but through Israel's kings, and particularly through a son of David who would reign over an eternal kingdom, again, 2 Samuel 7. And his kingdom would be a kingdom of righteousness and justice and peace, shalom. And then along comes this man Solomon, the king of David, and his name, anyone take a guess at what his name means? It means peace. It is a derivative of the word shalom. He is the king named, she literally, the king named Shalom. And if you were to create a chart, here's what happened. If you were to create a chart that depicted Israel's history uh, in the Old Testament story, it would look something exactly like a bell curve. And I should have probably put something up there, but technology just scares me. And I always think I'm going to be kind of staring, you know, like staring at the screen, like, when is it going to come? And so just picture it with me this way. Uh, a bell curve. The, the history of Israel that we've been looking at would look something like this. It would, it would go up, it would be here momentarily, and then it would immediately begin to come down and slide down the other way. So you know a, a, the whole idea of a bell curve, right, is this kind of, you ascend, you get to the pinnacle, and as soon as you get to the pinnacle, you kind of begin to descend back down the other side. And from the time of the Exodus all the way to this scene here, they have been, granted, there's been some negative things, but for the most part, the nation of Israel has been on the upswing. They've been kind of ascending Things have been getting gradually better and better, though not without some setbacks for sure. And in the reign of King David, and especially Solomon, his son, Israel has reached its pinnacle. This is as good as it's ever going to get for them. And from here on, they will begin the downward slope toward what ultimately will be exile. And things will get gradually worse and worse until God is forced to kick them out of the land, much like he kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden of Eden because of their sin, but for this brief moment, during the 40 years of his reign, Israel experienced God's blessing and prosperity and shalom in a way that they had not to this point and never would again, even to this day. They were the most wealthy, the most powerful, the most influential nation in the known world. And so in, these, in this part of the Bible, you read things that 
uh, that are meant to convey this idea. Things like 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 20. We're told Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea, and they ate and drank and were happy. In other words, it's going really well. There's prosperity. Everybody's doing good. Things are going really well. 1 Kings 4.25, Judah and Israel lived in safety. In other words, no marauders, no foreign enemies, no wars. Everybody was just settling in. Every man under his vine or under his fig tree. Everybody got to be home and everything was, you know, comfortable and nice and safe and nobody was going off to war and it was wonderful. Or 1 Kings 10, chapter 27, as Jonathan referred to a little while ago, Solomon made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. There was this unparalleled prosperity and wealth. The time of Solomon literally was the golden age of Israel. It was the closest they ever got to the promise of Shalom. And so this story here of this king is a story about earthly kings and the Shalom they bring to the people under them. And so there is an application, okay? As we walk through this text together, I want to kind of set the stage. There's an application to mothering and fathering. There's an application to spiritual leaders in the church, to business people and leaders in business and leaders in the community and political leaders even. Because there is, I want you to, there is a connection between human flourishing and abundance in the work of kings. And I remember the first time I was ever struck by this, I went to a funeral years ago of Mr. Strawbridge, who was a, it's a pretty well-known family in Lakeland. He has seven children. They all are in the faith. They're all very successful and doing great. And it was the, it was the longest, it was a two and a half hour funeral, which is, I'm a pastor and I, that's ridiculous. You know, that's a long funeral. But it felt like 20 minutes because of the stories and all of the things. And I, I just walked away from that. I walked away so encouraged thinking, I want to be a man like that who brings that kind of flourishing to my family. And he's just a simple guy, faithful man, but under his leadership, under, you know, under, under his masculine leadership produced flourishing for so many people. There is a connection between human flourishing and abundance in the work of kings. And so Psalm 128, for example, describes a family uh, led by a man who fears the Lord. The psalmist says, his wife will be like a fruitful vine and his children will be like olive shoots around his table. In other words, his godly influence and leadership bring them into a state of flourishing. They prosper, they're fruitful because of his his fear of God. And that's just one example, but the same goes for mothers and their children, for men and women and their employees uh, that they supervise at work or whatever the application may be. So as we read and meditate together this morning, we want to apply this to leadership in the home, in church, in business, to bosses, to mentors, and all of those kinds of things. Yet, what I want to say Yet, the flourishing we experience under good kings is always incomplete. It's usually, just like it is here, for a moment. It's just there and then it's gone, like in this story. So, the boss that you love so much gets replaced by a boss that you dislike, or there's divorce that splits the home, or whatever the case may be. And that means that human kings, like King Solomon, because they are sinful and broken, can't ultimately bring the shalom God has promised. And what we'll see in this text... So the flourishing that Israel experiences in Solomon's kingdom is just a foreshadowing of the kingdom of Messiah. That God had promised David that he would have a son whose kingdom, you remember last week, would be an eternal kingdom. And the peace and the justice and the wealth of his kingdom would far surpass 
even what Israel experienced under Solomon, and it would last forever. And so the son with an eternal kingdom that is hoped for and promised is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So these stories here in 1 Kings 1 through 11 beckon us to look to Solomon and to apply these things to our lives, but ultimately to look past Solomon, the king named Shalom, to the future king of David, son of David, of whom Isaiah the prophet says, of the increase of his government and peace, Shalom. There shall be no end, and he will sit on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. He is the king of Shalom, and only in his kingdom will we finally be home. So here's what we want to do. Three things this morning from this passage. Uh, First, we want to look at what Solomon did right, because there's a lot he did right, and we want to see what he did right so we can imitate him. Secondly, The text helps us not only by showing us what Solomon did right, it also shows us what Solomon did wrong. And so we want to look at what he did wrong so that we can avoid the mistakes that he made. So we want to look at what he did right so we can imitate him. We want to look at what he did wrong so we can avoid the same mistakes. But then thirdly, we ultimately want to land on how the one greater than Solomon is the one that we ultimately put our hope and trust in. So those are the three points in your sermon outline. They're there for you as we walk through this passage. Okay, let's start with just this. What did Solomon do right? And this is really a meditation on chapter 3, okay? In chapter 3, Solomon has a genie and a lamp moment. The Lord comes to him and says, Ask me for anything and I will give it to you. Now, I wish the kids were still in here. And I really should have pulled, I probably should have pulled my children. Maybe I'll do it this afternoon. You ought to pull your kids. It would be a fun exercise. Stop for just a minute and think. Kids, I will give you whatever you want. How would you answer that question? Wouldn't that be a great, wouldn't that be a great thing? Do that around the dinner table tonight. You can have anything you want. What would it be? It's a genie in the lamp moment. Solomon could have asked for riches, and God would have made him rich. He could have asked for a long life, and God would have granted long life to him. He could have asked for God to avenge his political enemies, and God would have done it. So your imagination goes wild, doesn't it? But Solomon doesn't ask for wealth. He doesn't ask for a long life. He doesn't ask for his enemies to be avenged. He doesn't ask for a homestead on 40 acres of land, which may or may not be the thing that I would have asked for. He doesn't ask for his kids to be healthy and successful. Here's Solomon's request, request, and this is my paraphrase of verses 6 through 9. Lord, I'm young and inexperienced and ill-equipped for the job you've given me to be the leader of your people, so please give me wisdom, because that's the thing that I need more than anything else so that I can make good decisions and be a good leader. And God was so pleased with his request that he promised to make him wise and discerning as he asked, and that's what he comes to be known for. Verse 24 of chapter 10, The whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom. God was so pleased, he not only promised to make him wise and discerning, but he also promised to give him what he didn't ask for, to give him wealth and honor and long life and a kingdom. And it's a great story. It's a great story. But what are the lessons that we can learn from it and put into practice in our own lives? And so let me just, let's, hopefully I'm going to be very practical today. So let me just mention a few things, I think, practically that we can, that we can learn from, from this story, okay? First, we learn what we need the most, more than talent, even, What we need the most is wisdom. Proverbs 2, which of course Solomon wrote most of the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs 2, Solomon says that gain from wisdom is better than gold or, or silver. And its profit is better than gold or silver. That wisdom is more precious than jewels and nothing we desire 
can compare with her. It goes on to say that we should adorn our lives with wisdom, not with riches or physical beauty or jewels. If you have wealth but no wisdom, that's not a good life. But if you have wisdom, whether you have wealth or not, that makes for a good life. What we need from our kings is wisdom. And what we need as we do our kingly work is wisdom. So Solomon's request is spot on. And his, his, um, what he's doing here is he's saying, and this should uh, startle you. Solomon's saying, given the chance, or excuse me, given the choice between winning the lottery and becoming wise, you should choose wisdom. That's one application. Secondly, we also learn here what wisdom is. If you look in verse 9, Solomon prays, Give your servant an understanding mind or a listening heart that I may discern between good and evil. And I like that. I like that translation of the phrase, give me a, a, a hearing heart. Wisdom is a hearing heart. And again, I'm paraphrasing. But Solomon says, I'm young and stupid. And, and a lot of us, we're young. This is, we're a young church, right? Many of us are young and stupid, and we prayed with the elders earlier. Some of us are young and stupid, and some of us are just not so young, but still stupid. Right? Solomon says, I'm young and stupid, and my job is too big for me to handle without help. So please give me a soft, teachable heart. And in Proverbs, the fool, the one who's opposite of the wise man, is a blockhead. He's wise in his own eyes. And that's the essence of being a fool, being proud and self-confident. Uh, and, a, and a know-it-all, and an individualist who does things his own way. But wisdom is always humble. Wisdom trusts in the Lord and does not lean on its own understanding. It has a hearing heart. It knows it needs to hear from the Lord. So sin is having a calloused heart or a hard heart. It's wanting to be wise in your own eyes. It's wanting to be able to do life without God. But Solomon prays, give me a hearing heart. Lord, I need you. I can't do life without you. I'm doomed unless you help. The task you've given me is just too big. I don't even know good from evil unless you teach me. So we see what wisdom is. Wisdom is a dependence upon God in all of the parts of life where it's unclear what the right thing and the wrong thing to do is. It is a heart that's tuned into God's guiding presence that leads to good decision making when it gets confusing or overwhelming. Third, we also learn what we should be motivated by here. Solomon is motivated by something very, very specific in his request for wisdom. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's his anxiety over the people that he's leading. So Dale Ralph Davis, who's a pastor and former professor at RTS Jackson, put it this way. He said, some anxiety is sinful. I thought this was really helpful, but he says, but then there's holy anxiety. He says, a watchful worry that trembles for the welfare of the people I'm called to care for. You hear that? A, a, a holy anxiety, a watchful worry that trembles for the welfare of the people that I'm called to care for. A holy anxiety, a watchful worry. Right? It's what mothers, you know, it's, it's, it's the anxiety of a mother and a father at 2 a.m. when the teenager isn't home yet. It's what Paul meant when he said that above all of his other sufferings, he lived with the daily pressure of his anxiety. He uses the word anxiety, of his anxiety for all the churches. And it's why God's so pleased with Solomon's request. He gave, he gave Solomon a blank check. A blank check. Ask whatever you want to and I'll do it. And Solomon wasn't selfish. He didn't ask for something that would just profit him. He asked for what he needed to do his job well. He asked for what he needed to be a blessing to the people 
that he was in charge of because his heart was gripped with a holy anxiety for their, well, for their well-being. And he knew what I've already said, that there's a connection between human flourishing and the work of kings. And he wanted to be a great king. He wanted to be a great king, not so he could become rich and powerful and successful. He wanted to be a great king so that he could bless and serve others. So moms, when it gets overwhelming and you don't know what to do, you can be confident that if you come to the Lord for wisdom, he is, he is gracious and he is eager to give it to you. And when you're at work and you're struggling and it's hard to know what the decision is that you need to make, you can pray for wisdom because God longs to give wisdom to people. He's pleased with our prayers for wisdom just as he was here with Solomon. But the last thing, before we move on to the next point, the last thing is that we also see here what the work of a king is. And in verse 9, Solomon asked for wisdom so that he could do, that he could do justice or so that he could judge. And that, that, that's the root of the word govern there in verse 9. And it's another important word in the Bible. It's the word that most often describes the work of a king. It's paired often with this other word, righteousness. And righteousness means, it, you know, Righteousness means right. It means it's a synonym for shalom. It means that things are the way they're supposed to be. That's what that word, whenever you read the word righteousness in the Bible, it means that things are the way they're supposed to be. They're functioning properly. But of course, we know all too well it doesn't take much, does it? I remember I went to, uh, I went to uh, Barbados when I was, uh, it was one of these lines that this lady made. And, uh, years ago, we went on a mission trip to Barbados and we were, the pastor that I was with pre- was preaching, and, and it wasn't getting. We were doing something with teenagers, and the teenagers weren't paying attention to us at all. And this bar, the lady, one of the ladies that worked with them, got up and started kind of, you know. And and the guy that I was with said, "I think you straighten them out." He said, and she said, "Yeah, I straighten them out." And then the devil goes back and makes them crooked again, you know. And, and that really is. It was just a cute, sweet little way of her saying, you know, that 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 things don't stay straight for long. Uh, constantly, th- it doesn't take much, and things get out of alignment. And that's what sin does. Sin is sin is being out of alignment. It's breakdown. So, again, just in theory, obviously, not really that it ever has happened. But when my tires aren't properly aligned on my truck, and I ignore it because I just think, ah, eh, it'll be okay. And then I finally take it in. It's not just the tires that are messed up. Now it's the axle too. So righteousness is the sense of what's right. What, what do, something doing what it's supposed to do or being what it's supposed to be. Justice in the Bible is what you do when you come across something that's out of alignment to get things back into a state of righteousness or shalom. It's, the king's job was to intervene into the brokenness of life or the brokenness in a community and to use his power and his authority and his resources to make things right again. And that's what it means to do justice. If somebody's being taken advantage of, you become their advocate. If somebody's being forgotten in the community, you include them. If a friend or a child is destroying their life, you confront them. That's what a king does. That's what a king does. He does justice. And it's what every one of us should do with our lives as well because Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness his justice and so we see there's a lot that solomon did right that we should imitate he knew he needed wisdom he understood what wisdom was he was gripped with a holy anxiety for the well-being of his people and he rightly envisioned his work as doing justice but unfortunately as the story goes there's also a lot that he did wrong that we should try to avoid and so this is this is really a meditation if you go over to chapter 11 now 
This is really a meditation on chapter 11, because in chapter 11 we read at the very beginning of the chapter, it begins with the words, now King Solomon loved many foreign women. And that statement is the clue, because you see back in chapter 3, in verse 3, if you look up a little bit, a little bit up in the, in the scripture passage that Gigi read, in verse 3 of chapter 3, you'll see that there's the statement, Solomon loved the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, but what's happened is, is here in verse 1 of chapter 11, it says Solomon loved many foreign women, and that's the Bible's way of showing you the problem in Solomon's life. His heart became divided. He started out by loving the Lord, but by the end he loved all of the foreign women in the place of the Lord. There were other loves that stole his heart away from the Lord. He began to build temples to other gods and make sacrifices to them. And we're left to ask, so how did this happen? How, how in the world does that kind of thing happen? And I don't think I can say it better than, than the man I quoted earlier, Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary on First Kings. He says, this was so helpful to me. He says, it was not some sudden attack or irresistible assault that explains Solomon's plunge into pagan ecumenism. Listen to this phrase. He says, no, it took years. It was the result of a creeping pace of accumulated compromises, the fruit of a conscience desensitized by repeated permissiveness. That's well said. And it's absolutely frightening. He said, let me say it again, the result of a creeping pace of accumulated compromises. If you look there in those verses, the the word heart occurs five times in the first four verses of the the chapter. So look in verse... um, I'm in the wrong, look, I'm preaching the Bible to you and I'm not even in the right place. That's pretty sad. That's supposed to be fun. Nobody laughed. That makes me even more nervous. He says, the, the things blow my pages up here all the time. Um, verse 3, he had 700 wives, princes and concubines, 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Verse 4, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart from after other, go- after other gods his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So yeah, this word heart is there over and over and over again. And what it's saying is that there was an imperceptible drift in Solomon's affections uh, that the text in First Kings, and particularly his own reflections in the book of Ecclesiastes, makes clear was due to the overwhelming success and prosperity that he experienced. It was too much for his heart to bear. I mean, look there, 700 wives... And 300 concubines? Does anybody get the shivers over that? <laughs> Holy cow. We were talking about this in our preaching meeting the other day, and we're all just like, whoa. <laughs> you know, like, good night. Right? I mean, listen, I love my wife, but, I, you know, one is about, as far as, I mean, I, I can't, you know. <laughs> I don't do all the work I want to do to help her, let alone. Holy moly. And, it, and really, honestly, it's there. It's there for this reason. It's an exaggeration, probably. Uh, and the point is not that, I mean, it, it, the point is that everything Solomon did, he did in a big way. Everything he did, and he did in a big way. So as his fame grew and his wealth grew, the increase stole his heart away, and it was too strong a force in his life, and it produced a, a creep of accumulated compromises that ultimately led to deep idolatry and sin. Uh, There's a story in Greek mythology that offers an interesting contrast to Solomon. In the story, the god Bacchus comes to a king and says, much like the Lord says to Solomon here, ask for whatever you want and I will give it to you with no hesitation. 
the king says, I wish that everything I touched turned to gold, and indeed it was. One problem, he started to get hungry, and when he went to eat, before he could get the food in his mouth, it turned to gold. And then his little daughter ran up to him to give him a hug, and before he could stop her, she had turned to gold. And it didn't take too long for the king to realize that what he thought would be an unbelievable blessing was actually a terrible curse. And so he begged the God to change him back to the way he was before. And of course, the moral of the story is that often, if you desire more than anything else to be successful or wealthy, when it starts to happen, you actually lose more than you gain. The success and the status and the wealth that you thought would make you happy actually steals the things that are the true treasures of your life from you. And we often say, right, that that someone who is very successful, we say of that person that he has the Midas touch. It was definitely true of Solomon, and yet he learned the same lesson that King Midas learned. You may get the gold, but if you lose your heart in the process, it's not a good trade. What does it mean for us? What does this part of the story mean for us as well? And I'd like to make a couple of applications here, just like I did uh, in the first point. And the first, I think it means that we have to know the danger. For most of us, to one degree or another, the trajectory of our lives is the same as the trajectory of Solomon's years as Israel's king. Uh, I, you, are, you, you are a bunch of talented, successful, godly people, which means you will experience God's blessing in very tangible ways. But don't forget that with the increase comes a great danger. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, the Lord is bringing his people into the land, and, and he says to them, you know, for all of these years in the wilderness, I've been miraculously feeding you day after day bread from heaven, but now you're going into a land flowing with milk and honey, and when you go in there, you're going to eat from gardens that you didn't plant, and you're going to live in houses that you didn't build, and it is going to be so easy for you, and it's going to go so well that I'm warning you right now what's going to happen. You're going to forget me. So know the danger that comes with success and wealth and prosperity and all these kinds of things. Secondly, ask hard questions. Ask hard questions. We read from Luke 12 in community Bible reading about a man this past week, who experienced on a much smaller scale prosperity like Solomon. So he decided on a course of action that would lead to more and more bigger profits and so forth. And Jesus tells the story as an illustration of a life that seeks wealth and success. And the point of the story is not that it's wrong to have a lot of money. It's not wrong to have a lot of money. It's wrong and it's dangerous to seek wealth and status and comfort, to be driven and motivated to have more and more, bigger and bigger because it makes you feel important or it makes you feel safe or it's just fun. So you have to ask hard questions. Am I seeking the kingdom of God first? Is God's mission in the world the thing that motivates me or just more stuff? What am I seeking? What, what is my heart after? And see, that, that's heart level stuff. It's, remember, it's Solomon's heart that's the problem. Heart-level stuff, they're core motivational-level questions that can be hard to answer. So you need people who will ask you the hard questions in your life. And the real tragedy of the story that Jesus tells of the rich, uh, of the rich fool is that when it's time to make a decision, his barns fill up and he decides, what am I going to do? When it was time to make a decision, he had no one to go to. His wealth had isolated him from the community, and so he reasons with himself. He talks to himself because there's literally no one else there to talk to. And so given what Jesus says elsewhere 
about the deceitfulness of riches. That's not a good strategy. Ask the hard questions and know your heart well enough to know that part of that means you have to live in community with people who have enough courage to ask the hard questions and help you get to the bottom of your answers. Third, uh, just by way of application, then I think the, the last thing that I would say is that, that, that we also, knowing the danger and, and knowing kind of the trajectory and what it can lead to, we have to avoid excess where we can and, and embrace generosity always. In Luke 12, Luke gives a specific application uh, so that we're not wondering what it means to seek first God's kingdom. He says in chapter 12, verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the needy and provide for yourselves money bags that do not grow old, and a treasure in heaven that does not fail. So intentionally embrace generosity and avoid excess. Give stuff away to protect your heart from uh, the power of stuff. But that's not what this sermon's really about. So let's, let's keep going. And the last thing I want to see. See, there's much that we should imitate in Solomon that he did right. There's a great deal that we should try to avoid that he did wrong. And isn't that true of all earthly kings? We're, we're a mixed bag, aren't we? All of us. Even, when we, have our, even in, when, when we have our moments, sin is still there threatening to undo all we've accomplished. So the message of this text is don't put your hope in Solomon or any other earthly king because they will all fail you. So lastly, Solomon's story points us beyond Solomon or any other earthly king to the one who is greater than Solomon. And for all the wealth and luxury and peace that characterized the 40 years of his reign, his kingdom was not the kingdom God had promised. We know this because of how the story ends. Solomon's wealth and prosperity and and all the the blessing that the people experienced led to his heart being ensnared, which led the Lord to come at the very end of the the passage that we printed there and said, uh, he says, Thus said the Lord, Behold, I'm about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon. And I will afflict, this is verses 31 and then verse 39, and I will afflict the offspring of David because of this. In other words, they've turned away from the Lord. They've begun to build high places and and worship and, and, and sacrifice to other gods. The wealth and the luxury and the peace has led to their downfall, and now the Lord says it's coming to an end that quick. Israel's about to be plunged into civil war because of their idolatry and sin. Uh, things they're, they've, they, they're on the downside of the hill. They're going to speed down into exile and all kinds of misery and um, misfortune. But then comes the tiny phrase at the very end. And Gigi did wonderfully in reading it. It was amazing the way she set it up. Because it's exactly the way you should read it. Behold, I'm about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon. And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this. But not forever. And that is the hint that the story's open-ended. It's pointing us to something, something else, something that's still coming to the one greater than Solomon. And the phrase, one greater than Solomon, is actually taken right out of our community Bible reading from this past week. And it's so neat when the Lord does those sorts of things. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus is interacting with the crowds who have gathered around his ministry. And he says, the queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with, against the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came to the ends of the earth, to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Of course, Jesus is referring to himself and to his ministry. He is the one greater than Solomon. He is the king from Second Samuel 7, the son of David, who would bring Shalom. Solomon is the king named Shalom, but Jesus is the one who would do what he failed to do. And so I want to conclude by just asking this. So how is it that Jesus is greater than Solomon? And there are two ways. First... 
Jesus is greater than Solomon in that all that Solomon did right, Jesus did even better. Solomon is noted for his wisdom. All the kings of the earth, we're told, came for wisdom. His wisdom was beyond measure like the sand on the seashore. He wrote many Proverbs in our Bible. But in Proverbs chapter 8, he does a strange thing. When he talks about wisdom, he begins to to use a, a device, a rhetorical device. He personifies wisdom. And if you read it, it's as if Solomon's saying... Wisdom is a person. It's not something that happens, you know, it's not something you get or something that resides in you. Wisdom's a person that you can know and love, and a relationship with that person is what makes you wise. And so John 1 is based on Proverbs chapter 8, and in John 1 we read, in the beginning was the word, the Greek word's logos, so you could easily translate, in the beginning was wisdom. And wisdom was with God. And wisdom became flesh. And of course, we know that that refers to the Lord Jesus. So Solomon had wisdom. Solomon had more wisdom than anybody else had ever had. Solomon had wisdom. But Jesus didn't just have wisdom. Jesus is wisdom. And he gives wisdom. And he becomes wisdom. So whatever wisdom Solomon had, it was a derivative. And in everything that he did right, Jesus does even better. So watch him. Look at him in the Gospel of Luke as we read together over the next couple of weeks. One of the things that's just blown my mind away as I've done the person of Jesus study is we think of Jesus as powerful, we think of him as compassionate, but what I'm starting to marvel at is how wise he was. He really is wise. But then also, not only is Jesus greater than Solomon in that all that Solomon did right, Jesus did even better, but also that in all that Solomon did wrong, Jesus was faithful. All of the excess got the best of Solomon. That's the problem with earthly kings. They start off with good intentions, but they're sinners, and so eventually at one time or another their selfishness gets the best of them, but not Jesus. See, Solomon's life was on a certain trajectory. More and more, bigger and bigger, more and more comfort, more and more excess, more and more. But Jesus, for Jesus, his work as a king did not lead to wealth and prestige as it did for Solomon. Jesus lost riches He lost prestige. He lost comfort. He experienced a decrease, not an increase. He literally, Paul says in Philippians 2, became nothing. And in that, he is unlike any other earthly king. Whatever riches Solomon had, they were paltry in comparison to what Jesus had. And yet the Apostle Paul wrote in one of his letters to the Corinthians, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty, might become rich. Solomon's work as a king made him rich. Jesus' work as a king made him poor because his goal was not to be served, but to serve. John Calvin put it this way. He said, Jesus' whole life was nothing but a sort of perpetual cross. And that's because his goal was not riches. His goal was not honor. His goal was not success. Jesus' goal was love. Don't you see? Don't you see, he's the one greater than Solomon. Jesus said the whole earth flocked to hear Solomon, but now one greater than Solomon is here. He's saying, I'm the one you've been looking for. I'm the one that you should be listening to. I'm the one who can bring you shalom. Not earthly kings. Don't put your hope and trust in them. They'll fail you. Come to me. Live under my care and protection. Listen to my words and obey them. My words are life. My kingdom is a kingdom of joy and peace, and all who enter into it begin even now to experience eternal life. So if you're here, and you're not a Christian, let me say, put your hope in Jesus and seek first his kingdom. Because only in his kingdom and under his reign will you find the shalom you're looking for. He is the king of shalom. 
But to all of us, let me say, where God gives you a place of leadership or authority over others. You know, however you would begin to apply this in the work you're doing in your life as a king. Know this. What we learn from the gospel of Jesus is just this, that to be a king, to follow him, and to be a king means a cross and not a throne. To be a king in Jesus' kingdom means a cross and not a throne. It means you focus all of your energy on serving rather than be served. And that's the kind of leadership that causes others. See, if, if there's a connection between kings and the flourishing of the people they serve, between leadership and the flourishing of the people under their leadership, the kinds of leaders that cause others to flourish are, are those who put all of the focus of their energy on serving rather than being served. That's the kind of leadership that causes others to experience shalom. And so look to Jesus and ask him to make you like him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that even as uh, we, I, the peoples in the Old Testament were, were singing out there in Psalm 72 that Jonathan read at the beginning of our service, long live the king, may he be blessed, because they knew, they knew that there was a connection between kings and the flourishing of the people that they serve. Uh, Father, that you, you uh, are the king of heaven and earth, and you have sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to bring your kingdom from heaven to the earth. And the invitation is open to every single one of us this morning that if we would repent and believe and put our faith in Jesus that we can enter the kingdom of heaven and experience eternal life now. Not just as something that will be ours one day when we float off into the sky, but now Jesus has come to give eternal life now. But the only place it can be found is in his rule and reign. And so we ask that you give us hearts full of grace to respond to the invitation of repentance and faith. That whether we are new uh, to the faith and we've never, or we've never even heard these things before, or whether we're, we're old in the faith and we've been here for a long time, that we would be fresh in our repentance, in our belief, and that through repentance and faith we would come to you uh, and experience uh, the blessing of living under your reign and rule. And then I pray that by your Spirit, who you've poured out upon your church because you have risen and ascended into heaven, that you would make us men and women who can be kings on the earth and cause the people that we serve to flourish so that in, our, uh, in the roles that we uh, play where we're in authority uh, and where we have a sense of leadership over people, that we would be a blessing uh, to those people that we serve and not only to them, but that we'd be a blessing to our city and that as you promised through Abraham that we would be the people whom you would bless and through whom you would bring your blessing and salvation to the ends of the earth. That's our hope and our prayer, and so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Because the Lord, the Most High, became the most low and was obedient all the way to a cross where he suffered and died in our place, bearing our curse. Now I raise my hands over you because, because Jesus has done that work. If you put your faith and trust in him, then here at this place, God promises, he, he, he pledges himself to give you the wisdom that you need and to cause you to flourish so that you can go and in your work cause others to flourish. That's the way this works. And so in this benediction, we are asking, God, please come, give me what I need. Give me the wisdom that I need. Give me the strength that I need. Cause me to flourish so that in my flourishing, I might bring others into the same flourishing. That's the promise. So receive the benediction then as he sends us out uh, to the places he's called us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. 
May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.